can go ahead and be seated. Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody this morning. Thank you for joining us. If you're online and joining us, go ahead and leave us a comment and let us know if there's a way we can serve you or pray for you or um, just just something you want to say. <laughs> uh, be happy to hear that. Um, it is good to be back with you. Last week, um, I appreciate all of you watching online. I saw as I was preaching and, and the number is kind of was, was up there and kept, you can see the number of people who are watching and that represents not just one person, but usually there's more people watching with them. And so that was really fun uh, to watch that and to see how many of you were actually there. And so uh, it was good to actually be there. But let's be real. Virtual church is not really church, right? Uh, church is the gathering of God's people come to worship his name. We're glad to have you here this morning. I'm glad to be back with you. Uh, some of you know I was sick this past week, and I am feeling a bunch better. And so I know some of you were sick. Uh, many of you have been sick, and, and just want to just say thank you. Um, one thing I do need to point out um, as I get going here, though, is there's these two young people down here on the front. Uh, Frank and Sue Ann Bastendorf, and um, they're back, and uh, yeah, healthy, healthy, and uh, some of you know they were struggling with COVID for a couple of months, and uh, we haven't seen them since Thanksgiving, so uh, it's good to, good to have them here. Uh, today is their 45th wedding anniversary. Oh, 43rd, sorry, I, 41, 41. I thought I heard 45 this morning, and then when I said it and it came out of my mind, I was like, that's not right, because they had 40th last year. Anyway, 41, sorry. So if you're on the internet, I do make mistakes. Um, a lot. <laughs> They're just not all captured on video like that one. So happy anniversary, and uh, uh, that is, that is uh, fabulous, and we're glad to have you back with us. So. Um, and, then, and then the last thing is just, if you'll uh, pray for my family, um, Javen's going back to college today after lunch, and so uh, just be praying for him as he travels back for the uh, spring semester. And uh, I'm sure he'll let us know and brag how much warmer it is there than here. So anyway, but there's a lot more snow there right now. So even though it's warmer, they've got more snow. Anyway, um, so you might say goodbye to Javen before you leave today because, you know, he loves it when I point him out like that. Uh, And the last thing I want to say is just I've kind of forgot this in passing and and with with us being gone a couple of weeks and not and not here um we had a few weeks ago probably like three or four weeks ago now uh, a meeting about um it was an interest meeting and an idea kind of brainstorming meeting about our children's ministry and getting that relaunched in 2022 and so we are going to be relaunching the children's ministry in 2022 there will be another meeting um that will take those ideas further we'll continue talking about that um that meeting will be in a few weeks just pay attention to Facebook and social media for those things. We don't have that date set because of, honestly, sickness and my schedule is the only reason it hasn't been set yet. So we'll set that meeting uh, and get that together. Um, so if you're interested in being involved in that um, and or, uh, you know, any, any type of involvement with that uh, from whether you're interested in kind of being a point person or you're interested in being one of the teachers or you just want to be a room helper, um, we would be happy to talk to you about that. We do have some requirements for it, and so um, we'll be happy to, to inform you about all that, uh, but, but just be paying attention for that meeting. And if you'll remember last week, we began walking through Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 12 through 18, so go ahead and open your Bible there because what today is is part two of last week. Last week I got to, uh, I got to <clears throat> preparing the sermon, 
And I started writing it out. And for those of you who don't know, I usually write a manuscript. I know that's boring to most people. But I write this manuscript out, and I got... Uh, I, I have a, a word count that I shoot for because I know that word count will let me go about 30 or 35 minutes. And some of you are like, when's the last time you preached that long, Pastor? It's been a while, right? Because normally what happens is I end up walking around like this away from my notes and doing extemporaneous stuff and then it goes longer. But I know that if I shoot for that word count, anyway, I got to that word count and um, I started looking at how much I had left to say and I was like, oh, this is two sermons. And so anyway, so that's why we arrive at today. We're doing the second half. Now, if for some reason you missed last week, you were sick or you didn't catch the live feed, or maybe today's your first time with us, um, you want to go back and listen to last week's message because it's really one really super long message cut into two parts. Um, And I did go through and add stuff to it for today. So uh, anyway, just to let you know kind of where we're at. And what we're doing is we're looking at the very practical implications um, from two weeks ago's message, this deeply theological passage in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, that was about the humiliation of Christ and Christ's example and how we were supposed to follow Christ's example. And then we come to today's passage, the last two weeks, of verses 12 through 18, and it talks about how you kind of practically apply that. How do you follow Christ's example of humility? How do you follow his example of selfless service and sacrifice? And if you remember last week, I opened up and I told a story, and this is just a recap to help people kind of understand where we're at. But uh, last week, I opened up and I told a story about how I used to play football. And one thing that I had learned from football is that you always, okay, there's more than one thing I learned from football, most of which are probably not repeatable here. But, um, but one thing was that this, you always play till the whistle blows, right? You always play till the whistle blows. Now, ironically, and I had no idea this was going to happen, as a Las Vegas Raiders fan, uh, if you watched the game yesterday, whistle blows are really important, <clears throat> especially when they end up happening and a touchdown that shouldn't have been a touchdown should be called back and you should be in the next playoff game. Anyway, that's the whole thing. But <clears throat> I'm, I'm, I'm being a little facetious there and a little serious. So you play till the whistle blows. And we, we talked about how in this passage, like we find that, that we're supposed to be doing the things that imitate Christ until he returns or until we're in a coffin, right? Um, we're supposed to be doing those things until the day of Christ. And we want to play till the whistle blows. We continue your sanctification journey that begins with you becoming a believer in Jesus Christ, okay? Coming to repent and believe the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ for salvation, that from that point until the day you're in the ground or Christ returns, there is this incline of sanctification of spiritual growth in your life, whereby God, through the Holy Spirit, makes you more and more like Jesus. And we looked at the connection, we looked at the connection between our work and God's work in verses 12 and 13 particularly, and how Paul acknowledged that uh, He acknowledged their obedience, that they had done a good job. So he commended them in their obedience, but then he continued by commanding this ongoing obedience to God, and then he offers them some encouragement about it. Now, our motivation to continue in this journey of sanctification is this, and this is what we said last week, is our motivation for this is that we're promised that God is working in us. That it is God working in us. When we are sanctified, it's not really us doing it. We're working. We're doing, we're, we're doing the things of trying to imitate Christ and trying to love others and, and being, diving in and studying the word and doing the things that build our affections for Christ. But it is ultimately God at work in us. 
Christ followers have that guarantee that God is working in us in our sanctification. And that's motivation for us to not stop, to play till the whistle, because it's not just us trying real hard and doing our best. That's not us. That, it's God working in us. It's God working in us. Remember, we are saved by grace through faith. Paul's not advocating for salvation by works. He says to work out your salvation and not work for your salvation. This is the practical living out of our Christian life and growing more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Now, that was last week, okay? That was last week. Now, some of you are thinking, why couldn't you have said it that fast last week, Pastor? In today's sermon, what we're going to do is we're going to continue to look at this focal passage while exploring the connection. Because I remember last week I said there were really three connections in this passage that we were going to talk about. The connection between God's work and our work. The connection between avoiding grumbling and shining as lights in this world. And the connection between sacrifice and rejoicing. So today we're going to look at those final two connections, the connection between avoiding grumbling and shining as lights in this world, and the connection between sacrifice and rejoicing. So if you've got your Bibles, you've got a device with scripture on it, let's read from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Excuse me, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask God to help us this morning. Lord Jesus, as we come to this time in your word, My prayer is, God, that you would help us understand. Even me, who's up here and proclaiming your word, God, I pray you'd help me understand. Help me be clear in the things that I've studied and the things of you. Help me be clear in how I communicate those things. But God, let our hearts understand. Don't let it just be a mental exercise, but let our hearts truly understand at a deep level who you are and what you have called us as your children to do. Father, if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, who's never repented and believed the good news, and I pray that today would be their day of salvation. It would be the day they would surrender to you, that they would repent of their sin and believe the truth of the gospel. It is good news for us, Jesus. I thank you for that. Lord, I just ask that you would increase here, that you would be big. I'm so thankful I don't have to rely on my own strength and my own... uh, ability to understand things but that you work that you work in your word you work in the hearts of your people do that this morning jesus may i decrease you increase it's about you jesus in your name i pray amen so the first connection that we're going to look at here in this passage is the connection between avoiding grumbling and shining as lights in the world And this is particularly pointed out in verses 14 and 15. 
Paul gives an admonition to the church at Philippi. Remember, these are the Philippians. These are the, they live in Philippi. They're the Christians that are part of the church at Philippi. Started by this gal, Lydia, when Paul showed up at a women's prayer meeting and people started getting saved, okay? And they started this church. And Paul spent time with them. Paul loves them. So when he's writing to these folks, it's not like, sometimes we read these letters and it, it's like we feel like it's a cold letter written to somebody, but this is more like a letter to someone you know. This is like, this is like if, <clears throat> this is like someone who used to, like, okay, here's a great thing. Um, this is like uh, my pastor growing up. He was the pastor of our church for 15 years growing up. This would be like when he, uh, went off and he did a, uh, he worked for our state association or a state denomination, okay? Uh, and this would be like if he then sent a letter back to the church saying, hey, I've heard some things and I want to encourage you in these things. It was because he, these are people he deeply cares about and loves. Now, Paul wasn't there 15 years or anything like that, but uh, this is someone who has a deep care for them, a deep uh, 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 a deep understanding of who the people in the church are because he'd spent so much time with them, okay? And he tells them to do all things without grumbling or disputing, right, or complaining. When we express our discontentment and we start arguing with one another, I know, wait, I know that probably never happens with you guys, right? You don't ever complain about anything, do you? No, no, no disputing or arguing, and surely not within the church, right? Yeah, we're laughing because we all know it to be true. It leads, so when we start to express our discontentment and then we start arguing with one another, what happens? Well, it leads to a spirit of division in the community of believers. It brings division into the church. Paul instructs these Philippian Christians to what? To abandon these things and not just abandon them, but to do that which promotes unity in the church. So here's the question. So if we're supposed to not argue and dispute and murmur and grumble and all these things, um, but we're supposed to work for unity in the church. Does that mean that we have to agree on everything? No. Because it is possible to have unity without uniformity. Now, I realize if you spend much time on social media, you will understand that most people don't believe that. They don't believe it. They think you have to 100% agree with everything with me in order for us to be unified. Uh, otherwise, like it's got to be uniform. No, we're not talking about people being uniform. A church is a group of people who gather together to worship Christ, and in a lot of cases, the only thing they have in common is Jesus. And that's a good thing. I'm not, I'll just tell you, I've helped um, different like affinity group churches get started. I haven't been a church planter, but I've helped like a cowboy church with their, some of their materials and stuff get started. And I've helped, a, helped out with a biker church get started and all those things. And I'm not saying those things are bad. I'm not saying, but like, I'm not a huge fan of churches being built around affinities because I think part of the glory of the church of Jesus Christ is that we got a bunch of people who shouldn't get along who shouldn't have anything in common, who come together and love each other deeply and grow together working out their salvation together. And I think that's the beautiful picture that the Bible paints. 
okay? So please don't hear me say I'm against cowboy churches. I'm not, okay? That is not what I'm saying, although I won't be planting one anytime soon because I am not a cowboy. Anyway, but we must be unified. Unfortunately, what happens a lot of times in church is people begin to see things in the church. They're going to the church. They begin to see things in the church. Maybe things in the church are changing in a way that they're not really cool with. Um, uh, Maybe things are maybe not going the way they want them to go. And ultimately, their personal preferences are not being met. And in some cases, they believe that their preference, the thing they want, They believe that it's not just their thing, but it's the only godly thing to do, or my preference is the right thing to do. And they've got a hundred reasons why it's godly for that wall to be blue instead of green, right? Now, I know that's, that's a shallow thing, all right? I understand that. And we all would go, well, yeah, obviously, the color of the wall doesn't matter. But I've seen churches, I've seen churches almost split over just about that petty of a thing before. So in some cases, what they do then is they start talking to their friends about it or they kind of start murmuring and grumbling in the background and Paul addresses these issues right here. He does that for a reason. He addresses these for a reason. Number one, I think he may have, maybe he had heard some of that stuff was going on, I don't know. Um, but here's, here's why I think it's addressed here for them and also for us is because perseverance in Christianity, in Christian living, persevering in Christian living is hard. It's hard to be around other sinful people and get along and not complain about them and not murmur about and not grumble and not dispute and not argue. It's hard. You are doing things that the flesh is at war against. You're showing godly hospitality. You're forgiving those who've wronged you. You're loving those around you. You're loving your spouse and your kids. You're sharing the gospel. And it's difficult doing these parts of Christian discipleship sometimes when our heart is out of joint with it. Our heart gets out of joint Maybe we're, uh, maybe we're neglecting some of the spiritual disciplines or maybe we're not uh, as, as active and involved in church as we should be and something in our heart is wrong. Something's going wrong and it's easy for temptation to sneak in and grab a, sort of grab a foothold in there and we begin to complain and we grumble and feel sorry for ourselves and all the stuff that's connected with that. And friends, it's not just established churches that deal with this. I know you're thinking, well... I understand, you know, our church is it's only 14 years old, going for, I am 14, going on 15, right? Uh, so some of, you, some of you got that, right? I know those aren't the words. I get it. Um, and I'm not supposed to be singing in front of you. That's like my family has pretty much expressly forbidden that, but just kidding. But they'd just rather I didn't. But anyway, most of you would rather I didn't too. But anyway, so so it's not just established. Some of you are thinking, well, yeah, that old... That old, you know, that old Methodist church up on the corner, yeah, they, uh, da, da, da. I don't even know if there's one on the corner. But anyway, they, they argue about this and the wall color, and I left because they were fighting about this. It's not just established churches that deal with this. Even young church plants deal with it. Church is just, just a year or two old. Sorry about that. Uh, 
I read a story of a church planner, and here's what he said. He said, in our young church plant, I have watched people come and go in two and a half short years. So the church is two and a half years old, okay? Um, like, that church is not even potty trained yet, okay? It's two and a half years old. Some people, or excuse me, often people come in with great enthusiasm for all that's involved in a church plant. The sacrifices, the challenges, the relationships, the risk, the vision. Then over time, though, the honeymoon ends. Seasons change and disappointment and discontentment set in. The temptation to complain and argue becomes very strong. This is also a temptation for pastors. The challenges of leading a church could tempt one to live in self-pity and despair. Amen. Spewing out Israel like grumblings. Okay? So there's temptations for that all around. You know, you come to it, maybe you come to a new church. And in our case, we're here, you know, and we're, we're, you know, have replanted Hope Bible Fellowship, basically relaunched it, right? Same name, but uh, we've got a very different look now, right? We got a very different look. And uh, it would be really easy for us after a couple of years to start sort of complaining about things because well it's not this way or that way or we didn't have this or we didn't have that or you know something as small as well we can't find the indian keychain or whatever i don't know i just should mention that earlier i don't know you know what i mean he's not grumbling about that i didn't mean it but but you know what i'm saying it's it's very easy because we're humans because we have a sin nature that's warring against our that flesh warring against our spirit it's very easy for us to get in a mode of all of a sudden we want to start complaining. Now, when he said that that was Israelite grumblings, that he, when he was telling his story about church plant, some of you were like, what, Israelite grumblings? I mean, you maybe caught it, or maybe you just blew right by it, but some of you may have caught that, and you wonder, what, what is he referring to? And if you're familiar with the history of Israel in the Bible, uh, <laughs> some of you are like, which time, <laughs> right? Which time are we talking about here? Well, let me, let me show you what it was like for Israel with their grumbling and arguing and, and, and its effects um, back in the Old Testament. So we're just going to skip around to a few verses. They'll be on the screen. Um, Exodus 14, 21 through 22 says, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. God had delivered them from Egypt. But eventually, they got discontented with their... Excuse me. Just kept reading there. And it's my notes instead of the Bible. I didn't mean to break that. So (laughs) the scripture stopped on their right hand and their left. So what had happened is God delivered them from Egypt. But eventually, what happens is the Israelites get discontented with their situation And they don't recognize or acknowledge God's provision for them. Because God had provided for them, right? He split the Red Sea. They go across on dry land. Egypt's army, Pharaoh's army, takes off in after them. The water collapses, and they're defeated, and the Israelites are scot-free, right? And then God provides for them. But that wasn't good enough for them. Exodus 15, 24 says, And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? They grumbled against God about the food that they had to eat. And they grumbled about the leadership of Moses. The outcome was that God has has them wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that whole generation of complainers died. 
Now that, I mean, I don't know what you like to do on a Saturday night, but wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years until the complainers all die doesn't sound like a good time to me. Doesn't sound like fun. And yet, that's what happened. And if we look in numbers, because again, we're, we're getting a picture here of this, this whole picture of this from different places in the Old Testament. Numbers 14, 26 through 27 says, And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. So the people are grumbling. Oh, how long are they going to grumble? I've heard their grumblings, which they grumble against me. They were not complaining at this point about one another. They were complaining about God. Yeah, they're complaining about Moses in there, right? But they're complaining ultimately against God. And then Numbers fourteen twenty nine it says, Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me. There was a, there was a, there was a penalty or, or a uh, uh, repercussion, right, from their grumbling. Is that the grumblers, the complainers, they didn't make it to the promised land. See, complaining and grumbling, sometimes it shows itself via whispers against an individual person. So they grumbled against Moses. Sometimes it'll be against an individual person, maybe your neighbor, maybe your literal like neighbor that lives next to you that lets their leaves blow in their yard. Um, and I'm real sorry about that. But anyway, uh, <laughs> maybe, you're, maybe it's your uh, person at church that, you know, they serve the coffee and you want to be the one serving the coffee. I don't know. Maybe it's the pastor. I don't know. Complaining and grumbling sometimes shows itself in these whispers against an individual person. Sometimes it rises to the level of vocal arguments. I've seen that both in churches. And you know what follows? Disunity, division. Again, these generally aren't over things that truly matter. I mean, obviously they matter to the person arguing about it. But should they, I think, is the question. However... I will say this, if we have a genuine concern, if you have a genuine concern about something going on with someone or in the church or wherever, there is a biblical way that we're to go about dealing with a personal difference and it does not include complaining or grumbling or having an argument. I just realized this sounds like I'm thinking of something or someone in particular. I'm I'm not. This is just where the passage went for this week, okay? Um, but if you're convicted about that, maybe you should think about why. Anyway, so as I've been, as I've been studying this passage, it's been real interesting to see um, the other books that I'm reading, that I'm not reading to study for this sermon, end up lining up with what is being said in the passage that I'm preaching right then. It's also been interesting in my personal Bible reading yesterday. I'm going through and I read something and I said, hey, I said, hey, to Bethany, I said, hey, uh, listen to this for a second. <laughs> and we talked about it for a minute and I was like, yeah, I'm going to stick that in the sermon for tomorrow, even though like the sermon was basically, it was, it was written. I was like, yeah, I'm going to add that in because, yeah. But anyway, I was reading this book 
by a guy named uh, Paul David Tripp, who I highly recommend him to you. Um, but his book is called Lead, and it's about leadership uh, within the church. And I stumbled upon this quote, uh, and actually, <laughs> I, I stumbled upon this quote, and um, I was listening to this book. So I've been going to the YMCA in the mornings and walking for 45 minutes on the treadmill and, uh, you know, trying to do my uh, do physical diligence, right? And anyway, uh, I'm out there, I'm walking, and I'm listening to this audio book. And this quote, he said this thing, and I was like, oh my gosh, I gotta, rem- I gotta remember that, I gotta go back and get that. So then later, I'm trying, you know, I've gotten the digital version of the book, trying to go back and find it, right? And here's what he said. Listen to this. Even though I may not be aware of it, My complaint about the bad service at a restaurant is not just a complaint about my particular server, but also about the manager who trained her and watches how she does her work. Grumbling about horizontal difficulty is at once a complaint against the one who lords over those difficulties. And here's what's deadly about this, he says. A life of quiet or not-so-quiet complaint hammers away at your confidence in the wisdom, goodness, and faithfulness of God. It causes you to rest less comfortably in his care. Why? Well, because you tend not to seek out and rely on someone whom you no longer trust. You tend not to seek out and rely on someone who you no longer trust. Ultimately, when we're complaining, we're revealing that we don't trust God to handle it. I I need a minute here, right? I need to sit with that a little bit. Do you need to sit with that a little bit? When I'm complaining, I'm not just complaining horizontally, but I'm also complaining vertically. That's what was going on when the Israelites were complaining about Moses. They weren't just complaining about Moses. You're complaining about the one who was leading Moses and how he led them. In verse 15, we see Paul con- contrast this idea of grumbling and arguing with um, those words blameless and innocent. And what he's doing is he's contrasting the purity expected of God's children with the sinful ways of the world around us. Saying we shouldn't be, we should be avoiding grumbling and complaining. And being blameless, being pure, being in contrast that stands out against the world around us. And in verse 15, verse 15, what does he say? The outcome of that is that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now, that's in the middle of a sentence, so let's just hold on to that. We're going to come back to that in a minute. But this idea of them not doing these things and imitating Christ in their attitude from, remember the passage before, imitating Christ in their attitude, that in that way 
that they shine as lights in the world up against the darkness all around. This idea of shining like lights in the world, it's, a, it's actually an allusion to an Old Testament passage. It's an allusion to Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 through 3, which just says this, And many of those who, sl- who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to share and an everlasting contempt, to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So here's the key, t- excuse me, here's the key takeaway from that that I want you to grab onto, okay? This is a key takeaway. When God's children reflect God's character in their conduct, it makes them stand out against the backdrop of darkness in the world. It shines brightly and puts on display not your goodness, but the transforming power of the gospel. When we, as God's children, those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, who've repented of their sin and believed the good news, who have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, when we live out a faithful Christian life and reflect God's character in our conduct... It stands out against the darkness that's out there in the world. In other words, when you meet a Christian, you know you met a Christian because they're so much different from the world around them. It puts on display, though, what shines is not how great you are, but how great God is and his power of transformation in the gospel. Because without that, I'm just dark like the rest of them, right? I'm not shining without the gospel transforming my cold, dead, evil heart. Philippians 1.27 says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. There are a lot of places in the world, and I don't mean other countries, okay? I mean a lot of places, meaning grocery stores, coffee shops, wherever, pockets of people who genuinely think because of various reasons, because of bad behaved people they know or because of um, very public falls of of some Christian leaders, who don't think there's any difference, any real difference in the way a Christian lives their life and the way someone who's not a Christian lives their life. That's a huge problem. It can mean a couple of things. One, it might mean they don't know any real, very, like, true, real Christians, number one. Or number two, it might mean that all the Christians they know aren't taking this seriously or as they are in their sanctification process and stumbling through their sin, right? They're not acknowledging it to them and saying, hey, wow, look, I follow Jesus, but I sinned against you right there, and I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Because that right there is a big difference in the world. The world says, oh, I don't need to say I'm sorry. I've got nothing to, I've got nothing to repent of, Right? Not only should we avoid complaining and grumbling because it sows division, but also because, and I would say mostly so, 
because it's offensive to God. We don't want to offend the Lord, and, and in not doing it, not complaining, we shine out against the darkness in the world. There's a little complaining going on in the world. I, haven't, I don't know if you've noticed that. You may not have noticed. Look, we have an opportunity every day to use our language for that, that which dishonors God or that which honors God. All right? And I don't, I'm going to say something that's probably going to make people mad, and that's okay. Like, at my house, at my house, I will listen to a podcast, or maybe occasionally every once in a while, but not if I can help it, watch the news, and, and get really angry. One way or the other, get really angry at what's going on. And exclaim something like, that guy's so dumb. Right? Or she's the worst, or blah, 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 blah. Or, you know, he's evil, whatever. We have an opportunity every day to use our language for that which honors God or that which dishonors him. And I'm going to say this. There are things that we can say about People, public people, political people, presidential people, non-presidential people, whatever, that we can say, and in saying it, we may be dishonoring God. Even if that person's life is dishonoring to God, we're to be honoring God in what we say and the way we say it. And we all know there's ways to disagree with people without dishonoring God, right? Right? And I'm telling you this because I'm guilty of it. I'm telling you this because this is me, like, I'm guilty of this too. This message strikes me in the heart as much as you. So when someone asks you how you're doing, because remember, our words have the, the opportunity to dishonor or honor God, right? Either with complaining and grumbling or with pure speech, right? When someone asks you how you're doing, what do you say? How do you respond? Most of us this morning, we went around, we talked to everybody as we were coming in, and we said, how you doing? And we said, fine. I'm doing good. I'm fine. Feeling pretty good. I know one guy that always says, just live in the dream. Which makes me want to punch him, and then I have to repent. But, right? Just live in the dream. But here's what... I heard of a pastor that says this, and, and, and I know famously Dave Ramsey always says this is his response. When someone says, hi, how are you doing? Uh, and he will say, better than I deserve. Better than I deserve. And I've used that some before too. But the point of, of me bringing that up is I wonder if the way you respond to that question, how are you doing, saying better than I deserve, or whatever you say, it doesn't have to be that, Right? I wonder if at your response, does it give you an immediate opportunity to talk about the good, to talk about the good and the rescue from your sin that you have in Jesus? Because in this example, if you know Jesus, you truly are better than you deserve, right? 
Or does when someone asks us how we're doing, is that give us an opportunity to start complaining and grumbling? Now, I'm not saying you have to be positive with them. Like, if something's wrong and someone says, how are you doing? Be like, well, my back's out. Tell them the truth, right? Okay? Be honest. Be vulnerable with one another. But if someone says, how are you doing? And your answer is, well, I'd be a lot better. That stupid pastor would stop blah, 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 blah. All right? See, I didn't use a politician that time, right? Or I'd be a lot better if they'd get rid of Matt Nagy and blah, blah, blah. Well, and if you thought that, you're doing fine. But, uh, right? Like, what do you... (laughs) Yeah, I can hear you guys up here. (laughs) Because, again, with our language, we have an opportunity to honor God or dishonor God. And I'm not telling you to not disagree with your athletic team coach or your president or whoever. But what I am saying is we need to do so in a way that is honoring to God. And that's very hard because in our culture, we don't see that at all. So when we do it, we shine like lights in the world. So how do we do this? How do you go about doing this? How do you avoid grumbling and complaining so that you shine like stars? Well, Paul has an answer right here. God has an answer. Look at verse 16, which is a continuation of that sentence, because don't you know Paul can write a long run-on sentence like nobody's business, right? It says, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So how do we avoid grumbling and complaining? By holding fast to the word of life. That refers to the message that brings life, which is the gospel. That Jesus Christ, Son of God, 100% man, 100% God, came to earth, lived a perfect life, never sinned, and died on the cross in the place of sinners, taking our sin upon himself and giving us his righteousness, his right standing before God. And he died. And three days later, by the power of God, rose from the grave, which showed us, which proved to everyone that God accepted that sacrifice as once for all. Nobody ever has to die for sin again. Nobody ever has to pay for sin again. It is finished. It's done. So we hold fast to the gospel, the word of life. And as a follower of Christ, as a Christian, your mission is to proclaim and defend the word of life because it's our source of vitality. It's our source of where we get our life. It's where we get our hope for living. It's where we get our hope for dying. It's where we get all of our hope. And our, our mission is to proclaim that, not argue and grumble and complain about things that do not matter. And in our proclaiming of the gospel and in our defense of the gospel, when we have opportunity, we should do that with gentleness and respect. That's what it tells us in the Bible. Okay, First Peter, I believe, 3.15-ish. Okay? So, you see how it's all connected? Colossians 3.16 says this. It says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So how do you hold fast to the word of truth to avoid grumbling? Know it Know it. Study it. Be ready to share it. Cling to the word of life. Today is January 15th. Today's January 16th. Boy, I'm a day late and a dollar short. I got the day late there. 
Um, I promise you I'm a dollar short also. Um, Today's January 16th, and some of you probably have not settled on a plan for reading the Bible in the new year. I'm not talking about reading through the whole Bible, although that is one possibility, and I've done that, and I've done that uh, several years now, and it's awesome, and you should do that at some point, um, at several points. But maybe you haven't picked out a reading plan for the new year yet. Um, our engagement with the Bible is the number one indicator of, of spiritual growth in our lives, and it affects every other area of spiritual growth. Out there on the table, we still have some Bible reading plans. They're through the New Testament in 260 days, which means you get two days off every week, so it's a five-day reading plan. It's not too late for you to pick that up and start going through it. You can start today and do some of the weekend readings too. It's one chapter a day. It's one chapter a day. And you can still make it through. And know the word, study the word, read the word, be prepared to share the word, and cling to the word of life. Why? Because, again, it's our source of life, our source of vitality. You know, in John chapter 6, which is a real interesting chapter in the book of John, we have Jesus saying some very hard things to people, right? He's teaching about, you've got to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, right? And he goes there, and, and the disciples and the people, like, he lost followers in this deal. The disciples were really confused and concerned about some of the things he was saying and in in, uh, verse 60 through 70 it says this when many of the disciples heard it they said this is a hard saying who can listen to it but Jesus knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this well there's that word grumbling sorry his disciples were grumbling about this said to them do not do you take offense at this then what if you were to see the son of man ascending to where he was before It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. I want to key in on what Simon Peter answered there. Jesus is like, you guys going to go away too? Because people are starting to leave him because his teaching is difficult, right? It's not, this is not easy, feel-good stuff, right? All right? This isn't your best life now. (laughs) I saw a thing this week that said, if right now is your best life now, then you're going to hell. I'll let you think about that. <laughs> think about that. But anyway, he, this is not easy, feel-good teaching. Right? And he says, do you guys want to go too? Simon Peter speaks up and says, where would we go? In the words of eternal life. So where else would we go? Grumbling, complaining. Where else would we go? We have the 
words of life right here, right? And the word was made flesh, and his name was Jesus, right? The third connection, I'm going to be quick through this one because I spent all my time. I said this could have been three sermons, but it's only going to be two. The third connection is the connection between sacrifice and rejoicing. When in verse 17, Paul says that he be poured out like a drink offering, that sounds really, really strange to us. But in the ancient world, you could pour a drink out as an offering to a god. And when he talks about them as a source of his pride, okay, when he, when it, he talks about them as being a source of his pride, he's talking about the fact that the Christians in Philippi, who are mostly, by the way, not Jewish, but Gentiles, that they represent the fulfillment of Paul's ministry, his calling as the apostle to the Gentiles. See that in Acts 9, uh, 15, he says, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And in Romans eleven thirteen, Paul says this, Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. And what we find Paul doing, so he, he is proud of them because it's like, a, it's like a, a confirmation and a completion of, yes, I've been, I was supposed to be the apostle of the Gentiles, and look, here I am, and you are succeeding, and God is doing a great work in you, and he magnifies not in himself, but in the Lord's good work. But then Paul also rejoices amidst his suffering. Remember where he's at at this time. Right? He's in jail. Right? He's in prison. And when he rejoices amidst his suffering, he's following the example of Jesus, who was not only willing, but actually joyous to suffer for the sake of the gospel. It brought Paul joy to suffer so that the gospel would go forth. And it brought Jesus joy to suffer so that the plan of God of salvation for men and women would be accomplished. Now, if that sounds weird, Hebrews 12.2 should unweird it for you a little bit. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. If you follow Jesus... In any honest and faithful way, which there's only one honest and faithful way, but if you follow Jesus in an honest and faithful way, you will have suffering. You will have suffering. And you can look forward to the joy on the other side of that suffering for sure, but I'm telling you that God can give you joy unbounded even in the midst of your suffering. If he is your Lord, your King, your Savior, then you can have joy. And I'm not talking about being happy. I'm talking about something deeper. A joy that pulls you back from the brink of doubt during times of suffering. There's a a story in Luke chapter 7. Jesus is doing ministry. Uh, John the Baptist, I believe at this point, is in jail. Um, This is before he gets his head cut off, okay? Uh, And he hears about the miracles of Jesus and the things that Jesus is doing. And he sends his followers to Jesus. And they say, are you the one we're supposed to expect? Or should we be waiting for another? And Jesus says, tell John what you, know, tell John what you saw, the lame walk, the blind. Or this is not an exact quote, right? right? Tell him what you saw. And goes through a list of things. And they go back. And, 
And I, this is the thing I was talking to Bethany, and I'm like, man, it's so weird that John had baptized Jesus and proclaimed, this is the Lamb of the God, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, right? Behold the Lamb of God. Like, seemed like he knew pretty much who Jesus was. When he was in his mother's womb, and Mary showed up pregnant with Jesus, uh, the baby leapt. He knew who Jesus was even as a fetus, right? So it seemed weird to me that he would send messengers saying, hey... Are you, are you the one that's coming, or is there, are we waiting, is there somebody else? You know what I think that was? And I don't have a scholarly option for this right now, okay? But I think there's a chance that that was just good old-fashioned human doubt and suffering. Like, hey, here I am in jail, probably going to die here, and uh, just want to know if uh, you're the real deal or not. Like, for, like just, just one more time, just give me, just tell me one more time. <laughs> Are you the real deal or not? Because here's the thing. Our joy in our suffering will pull us back from doubt. Our joy, and that joy is found in knowing who Jesus is and trusting in what he has done and will do. So now it's your turn to respond. I've had my time. It's your turn to respond. So what can you do to respond to this? Well, one, I would say, avoid grumbling and complaining by clinging to the word of truth. Seek ways to be unified with other believers. I would say another way you could respond to this by clinging to the word of truth is to start a Bible reading plan. I don't care which one. All right? And I don't care what... I mean, yes, I have a preferred translation or two of the Bible that I think are best for study. Yes, but I love what one pastor said, and someone asked him and said, what's the best translation of the Bible? And he said, the one you will actually read. All right? Seek the Lord in the word. Cling to it. And do it till the day of Christ. Play till the whistle or trumpet, right? Play till the trumpet. Look forward to that day. Rejoice in that day that will come, but don't stop until it comes. So the question that you all have to deal with over the next six, seven days, actually the rest of your lives, really, three things. Are you willing? Are you willing to take God at his word and to live life the way that he says those who've trusted in him ought to live their lives? Number two, God may be telling you something through his word. And this morning you know God has told you something through his word. And you know there's an obedience that is required of you. And the question is, will you do what God has told you to do? Got to answer that. You can answer it one way or the other. Because you're either going to do it or you're going to walk out and not do it and go eat popcorn, right? And the third question is, okay, so are you willing? What has God told you to do? The third one is, when will you do it? Well, why do you ask me that, Pastor? Because... A lot of times, sometimes there'll be a specific thing that we know we need to do to build on our relationship with Christ, to build our affections for Christ, to help our hearts be more inclined to him. And we're like, yeah, I need to read my Bible more. Or I need to pray more. Or I need to set a time to talk to so-and-so about Jesus. When are you going to do that? Set a time. Tuesday at 10, whatever. We put everything else in the world on our schedule. Put what God has told you to do on your schedule. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you. Thank you for your word.
God, I pray you'd capture our hearts. God, I pray that we wouldn't let this just be something we do during our week. We, okay, we, you know, we plow the drive, and then we go to church, and then we go to school or work. God, let this be a time where, as we've heard from your word, it be that touchstone, that, um, that spike in the timeline of our lives where we heard from you and we surrendered and said, I will be different by the power of God because of the good news of the gospel, because of the work of the Holy Spirit, because of an empty tomb, I will be different from now on. And God, we recognize the only way that happens is with you working in us. But we have that promise. We have that promise in scripture that you are the one who does the work in us. Help us trust you and take you at your word, Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to sing one final song. Stand if you're able. Um, But I just want to challenge you. I I know you're like, Pastor, you spoke for almost an hour. you've, You've been challenging us a lot. I want to challenge you to really, wherever you're at, try to take the next step. I don't, we're all at different places in our faith journey, okay? We're all at different places in our walk with the Lord. I want to challenge you, dare, sort of dare you, <laughs> double dog dare you, take the next step with the Lord and let today be the day that that happens.